Hey, I'm Tegan. And I'm Eric. This is the Professional Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers and the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving community. This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home, as well as yardage for the fashion and accessories industries and value-added products for farmers and wool growers. Find out more at comfortclothweaving.com. We would like to thank Susan, Chichilia, and Richard, as well as Caitlin, for being patrons of the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, go to proweaverpod.com slash support to make a one-time or monthly support contribution. This week, we talk with Brianne Rosner, the gallery director of the Peters Valley School of Craft, located in Layton, New Jersey. Peters Valley School of Craft, founded in 1970, is nestled amid the field, forests, and streams of the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area. The historic buildings have been adapted to serve as a gathering place for a thriving community of artists and environmentalists, thinkers, and changers of the world. Peters Valley is considered a thought leader in the field of fine craft and one of the top five institutions of its kind in the United States. Peters Valley champions the unifying power of art, craft, and creativity, celebrating the diversity of our shared humanity. Their mission is to enrich lives through the learning, practice, and appreciation of fine crafts. We hope you enjoy the conversation between Eric and Brienne as they talk about the history of Peters Valley and the craft fair, what have been the challenges of establishing a virtual craft show, and to speculate on the future of the craft show market. We started our conversation with a brief history of Peters Valley School of Craft. Sure, so Peters Valley is actually celebrating its 50th a uh, year this year. Damn. It was started in 1970 with a craft fair. So um, oh. the school actually, um, we're park partners with the Delaware Water Gap National Recreation Area, which falls under the National Park Service. And there was a whole, um, the, it was going to be like a flooded um, recreational dammed lake area in the late 60s and then that project fell through so in an effort for them to bring people to the park once it became a park um they had a craft fair in 1970 and then from there the um, peters valley craftsmen became a group and it's evolved since that time into the premier craft school that it is now so Um, We have nine different studios. We teach immersive workshops, uh, mainly for adults, but there's a youth program. But they're um, spring, primarily in the summer um, and fall, two to five day intensive classes. People come from all over, even internationally. Um, We've had international instructors as well um, to take classes in anything, fibers, um, ceramics, woodworking, fine metals and jewelry, photography. We've got a special topic studio where we do glass, um, woodworking. So there's there's a lot and everybody comes together, um, you know, for lunch and weekly slide presentations. And we're, we had to cancel our classes this year um, due to COVID. So it will be interesting to see how we can kind of integrate back into that. But we also have a gallery that's open year round. So in addition to the craft fair, I also run the gallery 
and we feature uh, over 150 American artists there. And then on our second floor, we do rotating exhibitions. So the building that the gallery is in is actually an old general store. The buildings that we inhabit within the park are um, a historic tap village hamlet wow. called um, Bevins. And so, so a lot of the buildings were residences, but like I said, the gallery um, was a general store and post office and luncheonette. So there's a lot of history in the buildings. Um, some of them are, were built in the 17 and 1800s, and then some as late as the 50s. And so that's the great, the great place. So did they, um, did they like have everybody leave when they wanted to make it into a like water recreation area is that why the town's abandoned yeah they came in with eminent domain there are some private stakeholders there's a wonderful place down the road called the Wapak inn and people will drive an hour hour and a half from more urban areas to come eat dinner in this really bucolic area and so there are um but it's mostly mostly parking it straddles um so the recreational area is New Jersey and Pennsylvania from like route 80 down at the water gap up mm -hmm. to Milford, Pennsylvania, oh, Okay, like a 22 mile um, stretch. Yeah. And, and then it spans the two States. That's a nice chunk. So we're just, we're, I don't even think a mile in from the river, just over um, the demons ferry bridge, which is the last privately owned bridge along the Delaware. It's a really cool it might scare you the first time you go over it. It's really narrow, um, but we're just we're just right off that. So so really right at the border of Pennsylvania in northwestern New Jersey. That's cool. So with the um, the craft show in uh, 1970, is that something that has happened every year, or did they have it and then take a few years off and then sort of start going again? As far as I know. There's been a craft fair for every year uh, for the last 50 years. In either 2002 or 2003, they um, switched locations from the campus. The show was held in July on the Peters Valley campus in a big field. So you can imagine if it was raining, mm. um, what a disaster, or the restrooms or things like that. So in the early 2000s, they relocated to the beautiful Sussex County Fairgrounds, which is about um, 20 minutes east of Peters Valley. So, um, you know, going back towards New York on Route 206. And it's a, it's a really nice space. The, show uses both outdoor spaces and then there's all different buildings we have i think four four different buildings and like a pavilion area so uh and it switched to the end of september so it's been held the last weekend in september for quite a number of years and so it's a really it's like fall you know it's really beautiful and then you come out and it's nice to, you know, it's not like you're going to a big convention center and just rocking rows of booths. You're going in this building, then you're going to come outside, see the artists outside. Um, we, Peters Valley, sets up in this pavilion. We set up a big display from the gallery, and we sell work by our gallery artists. And then we have demonstrations throughout the entire weekend showing, you know, what we have to offer at Peters Valley. We have hands-on activities as well. Um, kids' activities and things. So we have local community groups have booths. So we, we, you know, we really try to 
make it that more holistic experience than just going and seeing artists. But of course we want the focus to be on artists and artists, you know, having successful sales, people buying artwork. That is the most important thing. But Mm. when people can connect and see how work is made, I think it's a more, it it gives more meaning to the work that the artists are making and artists might do demonstrations in their booths as well. Oh, that's cool. We we try to educate, we have very educated um, attendees that come, we've been told, um, and we, we really try to show that the importance of that. Mm. So, um, you said, did you have to cancel all your classes this year? Did you get like a couple months in where you did have classes? None. No, our classes were scheduled to start in May. And so we're, we're doing some online courses now and we're seeing how that's going. Um, and trying to plan for next year with the unknown, uh, you know, of mm-hmm. it, how we'll be able to go back to campus. Yeah. So has that affected like, um, like your, I could, since you're on a, are you privately owned as a business or as a mm-hmm. organization or you're owned by the park? Neither. We are our uh, own independent 501c3 nonprofit oh. organization. So we're a partner with the park and we have a lease agreement to use their buildings and we're responsible for certain maintenance and they're responsible for certain maintenance, but we are our own registered nonprofit. That's cool. I've seen other places where the park service like allows when they get land or come in and take like a bunch of land for, um, national parks and things like that i've seen other areas where they do similar things where they've had um like old school houses like people have been allowed to stay after they've sort of bought all the land around them with the understanding that they can stay and keep up these buildings that they own and then when they die it just all of that automatically goes to the park i think it's really cool way for the um the government to kind of uh like keep the like interest in certain areas or even a way for them to not have to worry as much about keeping stuff up you know like you guys are there making sure buildings aren't falling down and keeping an eye on that mm-hmm. stuff even if they have to repair it there's somebody there in it using it it's nice that it's not just like sitting empty because they have a park there and nobody's allowed to do anything yeah and in addition to that you know we bring a lot of people to the park. Mm. So they bring people to us, right? Our gallery, um, you know, we get our customers and we get local um, supporters, but but we also get a lot of tourists that shop the gallery and are able to then purchase work from, from our artists, which is great. And then we bring our students and again, some shoppers that come then to the park. So if we have people even coming internationally or from around the country, then they get to experience the park. You know, our photography classes, the ones that are out shooting, they're able to go out and in the beautiful landscape and take advantage of that. So mm. it's, I think it's a win-win for everybody. And like you said, you know, having people using the buildings that this park in particular just has an exceptional amount of buildings. Mm. Um, they've, they've taken a lot down over the years, but it's a lot of responsibility. When like people come to take classes, do they stay on the campus in the park or do they have to go outside of the park and stay someplace? We have housing available in the old farmhouses on our campus. Um, so people can 
take advantage of that. Um, you know, it's usually less expensive than like a local motel, but other people stay at motels or um, commute. You know, we have a lot of local people that come. They are rustic farmhouses, so mm-hmm. it's not it's not a luxury uh, five star hotel. But yeah. it's really fun to be able to you know stay with other people and, and meet new people, and they mm. have some have private bathrooms, but um, a lot of like shared house uh, bathrooms, like because there's old houses. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. We have an exciting announcement, and we just couldn't wait until the end of the podcast to tell you. We're hosting our first roundtable discussion on October 22nd at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The topic of this discussion will be the value of textiles. Textiles are part of our everyday lives. You cannot go through a day without encountering textiles in some form or another. And there is something inherently special about hand-created textiles like quilts, hand-knit sweaters, and hand-woven towels, especially when embraced in our daily lives. However, there is an ongoing discussion about the value of textiles. Does their prevalence in society diminish its value? Are the people who produce handmade textiles being compensated properly for their time? And why is there a disconnect between maker and product, and how does that impact the views of a particular piece? Join us for a conversation and academic discussion about the value of textiles throughout history and in contemporary times. Our guests and friends of the pod, Evie Erb, Lily Marsh, Justin Squizero, and Tegan Frazino, will discuss these topics and more. Together, we will be examining how textiles have been valued over time and how that has impacted how they are viewed in society today. Go to professionalweaversociety.org forward slash roundtable to RSVP. If you are a patron or a member of the site, you will be able to ask questions of the guests during the live discussion. Attending is free, but if you enjoy the evening and would like to help us put on more events, please consider becoming a patron or giving a one-time donation. What does the show look like this year in terms of, I mean, obviously online, um, but... You, I know that you got a platform uh, to do it, which is one of the reasons why Tegan and I decided to do it, because we've seen a lot of um, shows that are just like doing directories on Facebook for the weekend. And that has turned out not great in several regards on um, for some attendees who would normally go, but they don't have Facebook or want to have a Facebook or uh, for some um people who are vendors and they're not totally familiar with it and it's like a difficult thing to get around if you don't understand it so what was your uh sort of um process like and decision making about sort of bringing this show into uh 2020 and going online well when we first thought about it you know one one of the the most important objectives for me was to try to bridge the gap between online shopping and in person a lot of atten- first of all craft fairs in general are are kind of generational not mm-hmm. just they the exhibitors and the attendees and mm-hmm. so um, a lot of them you know like I'll talk to my mom and she's not that comfortable buying things online, you know, now with Amazon and all these sites and now with COVID, I think people are shopping online more than ever, but there it's, 
different to buy work from an artist, I think, than like just buying it from Amazon, you know, you can return it, you know, all this stuff like there, there's this, um, we wanted, we wanted to find a platform where we could give buyers confidence to shop online and that we, what we liked about this was that we could have this interactive element so if you if if people just want to go on and shop artist websites, which is how most of the virtual shows are today, you know, you go on, you go to this main portal where all the uh, exhibitors are listed, you click on their website and shop. People can do that. They can be in their pajamas. They don't ever have to interact with anybody, put their video on if they don't want to. But if they really want to talk to the artist, learn more about the work, or they want to see the work in person, like you want to really see the scale or like, how does this earring lay or how would I wear that? They have that opportunity to either go in a chat or to turn their video on and have a conversation with artists. And we hadn't found um, any other, we're using this platform called Hopping. Mm -hmm. And um, I think since we chose that, um, I know I've been on some calls with, directors from around the country of craft shows and there's a whole list of different platforms and they all have something different to, to offer and there's they all also have like things that you don't love about them right mm. it's not there's nothing perfect so i'm really curious to see how people do utilize it because what i liked about this is that there's just basically so many options right for all different kinds of shoppers and you see that when you go to a show right sometimes you'll have a customer come in and you'll spend an hour talking to them and you'll have other customers that just walk by your booth or they just come in and pick up the thing and buy it you mm -hmm. know and there's just so many different kinds of buyers and so i want i'm curious to see how they utilize this online platform and that hopefully they turn out because they you know like we're doing trying to do all this marketing to get people excited about it to try it you know mm -hmm. and we're um like we've got a practice session today and from that i'm going to be able to take live recordings so that i can do video tutorials for the attendees to understand how to navigate the site and there's just like there's a whole educational component which I, um, you know, working for a nonprofit craft school, I'm, I'm really glad that we can provide this opportunity, both for the educational part, for the attendees, you know, to get, hold their hand, to get them comfortable. And then also for the exhibitors, we've been running a series of Zoom sessions where we, we've helped, we've showed people how to um, create their own online e-commerce website, and how to do sales and how to do social media and promotion and really worked collectively because we all need to promote the event to all of our channels to get everybody to come just like a regular um, event. But, but this way we can reach national. We've got exhibitors that are from far away that would never be able to come and do our show. And then we've got like, at least on like our Peter's Valley mailing list, people that would never be able to, to, come to attend the show mm. can just log in from anywhere. And that's really exciting. Yeah. I can say, um, from a vendor side, uh, the, the prep for it is going well for me, uh, for Tegan and I, I'm excited for this show really. Um, but I'm just curious how 
what the fatigue is going to be in terms of vendors. Like if this goes on like through next year and I have to do like, and we just go back to our normal 16 to 18 shows in a year. Like if I have to be sitting at the computer all the time, spending my time uploading this, typing out that, putting this video together, doing this other thing, you know, it's, it's a much different process for uh, vendors where at this point we're to the point where I've got like a pile of stuff that all just goes in the van and then we toss our product in behind that and we're off. And like, that's all the prep we need, you know? So I'm just, yeah, but I think it's going to be the same because I think what this one, this is like the first of its kind for a lot of our exhibitors. So yeah. we're even finding, right? Like if we, if this is successful and we do a virtual, another virtual event in the future, even if we go back to physical shows, we might still do this as something different, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's to be seen, but we now know what to, in, uh, what information we need from you upfront. Whereas Peter's Valley didn't know that, right? Mm -hmm. And you might not have had a video. You might not have had your website updated. You might not have had all of that stuff, but now you do. So now it's in a cut and paste, you know, format, just like setting up your show booth and going and doing that. Because once you do it a couple of times, you've just got the system down. Yeah. So it's just like, now is that learning curve. Mm. Yeah, and that's what I think. Yeah, I I think that that's probably true because eventually, sort of like as you see in like any sort of tech area, the everything sort of start like every different company that does a different thing sort of starts to merge towards the center because people are like really comfortable with this aspect of doing mm -hmm. this, or mm -hmm. um, it becomes a standard because some huge show did it and now like that's the way people expect it to work. Yeah, like this year, all these different shows, everybody's trying something different, mm -hmm. you know, and like, I mean, I've got calls, you know, in the works to, to be scheduled after the event with other organizations to, you know, debrief and let's talk about what you did and what I did. You know, I'm going to talk with the American Craft Council and I've talked with um, the Philadelphia Museum of Art Craft Show director. And so we're all doing our own thing. And then we kind of all want to work together like we're not it's just like other shows right mm -hmm. and, you know when i was first looking at this i was like well i don't want somebody to use this platform right before me and then what if they do it wrong and nobody wants to come and then at a certain point you realize that even though it's national and even though our artists are all like broadcasting to their national list there's so many artists out there every show producer or organization really has their own um email, you know, their own, mm -hmm. their own people and there is overlap, but then there's still different people. Mm -hmm. So just like shows, you know, when two shows schedule a physical show the same weekend and an artist has to choose between which show to do, that's not helping artists because artists need multiple outlets to be able to make an income doing this. And so mm -hmm. we do all need to work together and we can learn from each other and we do want to offer different things, right? But we do want to provide as many opportunities for artists to to have marketplaces to to make a living. And I think it's really important 
to think about that and and work together. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, but but what you see this year is everybody's got something different. And then I think it's an interesting point that you make. Well, everybody, you know, there's like a big platform called Booth Central. Will everybody eventually do that? Is Booth Central going to figure out all of its kinks to be like this application? Like as from a vendor side, you know, I had this year until this weekend, my only show was ACC Baltimore. And then as soon as we got back from that, basically everything got canceled for yeah. the rest of the year. And so I've now, I've got the Peters Valley show and I've got the farm to fiber tour. So we've got three shows this year and who knows what we'll have next year at this point. But I'm concerned um, both for uh, craft show promoters and for us as vendors that if like it was a sudden stop right i mean it was a hard stop mm -hmm. and we were done for the year but how do we get um our clients back like who at least the shows we go to and do really well at are 95 percent at risk for like covid and you know health issues mm -hmm. um how do we get them back to the shows how do we, how do I as a vendor come back and like have the money to pay any promoter yep. to go to a physical show? Um, like to even get started again. Uh, I mean, we just spent, Tegan and I just spent the last three years of our lives working a hundred hours a week to get to the point that we could even go to shows um, and like afford them. And then I think like uh, to wrap that up i think that the idea of taking this year to like test a platform and maybe into next year and then sort of maybe easing back into a in-person show over a couple years where i might have the op option as a vendor to just attend online so that i could actually afford to come and you guys get vendor good vendors still and us as businesses can still survive and hopefully get back to the point where we could do 12 shows a year that all cost a thousand dollars or something like that. You know, um, it's a tough thing. And I'm curious if, if you guys have thought about that kind of stuff and are, if that's like a consideration in the possibility of it being like a hybrid show and how that moves forward. That's a, I think it's a, a fantastic um, topic of discussion. I think it's so interesting. You know, I was even approached for a virtual show that is an investment. It's, mm. it's a lot more than other virtual shows. And I had to be honest to them and say, it all depends how Peter's Valley goes, because if I sell work, right, I've invested um, money. I, I paid for the booth fee and I'm coming up with a new line. So I've had to get materials. I've had to like upgrade my photo booth, you know, my new website, like all that stuff. Right. So you always still have investment. I know, um, artists that don't even have inventory stocked right now because they're not getting orders. So, you know, I was talking to a jeweler and we're like, I'm like, I got to order chain for all these necklaces, but it's like a lot, hundreds of dollars. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm making samples. I'm going to have one chain. I'm going to photograph it. I'm going to try to figure out how to display it in my live booth. And then, you know, place an order for when I, when I get the orders, because you just don't have all that money. Like you're saying, right. You used to 
be able to use income from spring shows to do booth fees for fall shows. Mm-hmm. And so any with this, with this other show, I told them, you know, I'm going to have to let you know, depending on it, you know, how it goes at Peter's Valley, if I have that money to reinvest and also seeing if it's successful. Um, so I think to that point, I know that when we were approaching artists about doing this virtual model and we're charging right $150 for our booth that also came with this whole educational tutorial thing that we didn't even know we were going to do. So it's a really good value, but I know that there are people that did not participate because they would have preferred that we took a percentage of sales after because it's an unknown. And if they're paying $150 and they get no business, can they do that? And we said, we made this decision because we needed advertising dollars. We are a nonprofit, right? We don't just have the money and the shows don't either at this point, you know, show producers because they've had to cancel all of their shows Mm -hmm. and give booth fees back, which I hope they all did because I know some didn't because it's not just the artists that it's a whole trickle down, right? So the show promoters don't have the money to promote the shows or, or hold the convention centers charge so much money, right? There are so many expenses Mm. incurred. Um, But then there's also the profits, right? There is a profit margin in that. And so it's finding that balance, I think, that show producers and um, vendors have to figure out. Because for example, to your point about, yeah, how are you going to have the money to like do all those physical booths next year if we do have physical shows? Where's all that going to come from? And the, the problem that we run into is to say, well, then we don't have the advertising dollars, mm-hmm. right? But maybe my opinion, I know that we've done this like for our emerging artists. We used to have them do a pay scale up to a certain amount, like after the show. So is it something, and, and I don't, I can't say definitively that we would do this, but these are the kind of things that I think about. Mm-hmm. To say, you know, because again, I have an executive director, I have a board, I can make recommendations and ideas and it has to be approved. So one idea would be to say, well, let's figure out, can we charge, you know, 50% in advance that gives us the money to run the show and then the other 50% after. Would artists want to do that? You know, what would people want to do? And I think at the end of the day, what I did, um, like to come up with that 150 dollar booth fee, I talked to exhibitors and some of the, you know, I had, I had people that I fielded this with and, you know, it's like a focus group and you say like, would you be willing to pay X, X, X and see what the response is. And so what I've learned from this show more than what we've done in any prior years, and it's always been important, but I think more than ever is really to work collaboratively with the artists because we're all in this together. We all need each other, right? We need you guys so that we can, you know, it can be a fundraiser so that people turn out. We need buyers for you to be successful. It's all symbiotic. And so how do we work together to find the win-win for everyone? And so Mm. I I think um, that it's really great when artists are thinking about this, show directors are thinking about this, and then we can all come together and have conversations to figure out how to transition back. Because I think, you know, I was talking to an exhibitor the other day and we were just saying like virtual will never replace in person. 
there's just something about like people want to go and meet people in person by work in person. You know, he did an outdoor show and I know like there are limits and we were trying to figure this out because they said, well, we got this many attendees throughout the weekend. And I'm like, but don't they have this many people that can come at a time? So maybe it was spread out, you know, and like, there's that logistical stuff, right? Mm -hmm. We canceled a physical fair because we knew that a physical fair would not be successful if only 500 people could come out. You need thousands of buyers to come out. Mm -hmm. You know, we know that for online, we have less artists, so we need less people. Like we're dependent on less people coming, right? To try it. You have to think about all of that. Um, But I do think that there is going to be a, a, a desire for people to want to attend shows in person. Mm. We just don't know if that's going to be 2021, you know, spring, fall, not till 2022. Um, and then to your other um, question with the virtual, I know like one of the platforms had it so that you could do virtual and online, like a hybrid event at the same time. Personally, I'm thinking of it more as separate events that maybe Mm. we do like an online holiday market um, and then we still do our fall show and then we can promote them both together. Or do we do a spring show also? You know, can we now do more shows? Because we have always thought about that, um, even with physical shows, like could we do a spring show that's somewhere else? You know, and then you have to look because, again, like you're saying with fatigue, you know, there's lots of events and then when does it become so saturated or when are there too many things, you know, Mm. field and supply has an event the same weekend that we're doing our online show. I think we have different buyers. There might be potential artists that we are going to lose because of that show. You know, it's, you can't, you can't figure out. There's always going to be those overlap, but, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a really, uh, and it's one of the, so, um, the like part of the reason we started this was because we wanted to um we felt like there was like a lack of real connection inside the weaving community at a professional level there's a lot going on in like beginner and intermediate and people who do it as a hobby but at the professional level it's still very sort of disparate and spread out and i think that one of the big things was um, like figuring out our supply chain. It's so hard. I mean, just like, uh, like making clothes and like a real production level, you need like connections to the right factories in the right countries and this and that and everything else. And I think that it's important too, that we as weavers take our businesses, uh, very seriously. And we really look at and try to connect with our supply chain. And I think that, um, like you as a show promoter, are such an important part of our supply chain because there's, I mean, how, how do we get out there really? Uh, like it, it, people doing real businesses, maybe they're part of organizations like interior design organizations or, um, you know, they've got like shops local to them that they can sell in and things like that. But as for finding a real market, the way to do that is really to go to shows and find people and repeatedly show up year after year. People start to recognize you and think, Oh, I can buy from them because they're not just going to disappear and not do this next year. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and I think that it's important that we connect and really talk about like these sorts of issues because, um, I do feel that like, like when I'm, I look at my booth fees 
as rent. I don't have <laughs> rent for the business because we don't have a storefront. We work out of our basement and our, I'm sorry, our studio that just happens to be below mm-hmm. where we live. Um, yeah. And but I'd say advertising too. I right. would pull it out of your advertising budget as well. Yeah. So that's what, so I look at it as rent. I look at it as um, like hiring a consultant, like a marketing mm-hmm. person, because yeah. I look at like, I, I essentially feel like as a small business, I'm hiring you and your organization to find me customers. I'm yeah. not going to come to your show year after year if you're not finding the people that'll buy my stuff. And that's nothing against you. It just could be the area. It could be the time of year. Mm-hmm. It could be a million things. Um, but like I'm looking at that and then, you know, having my just having our link on your website for a year it may the, just doing that may be worth one hundred and fifty dollars. You know, so I think that. But I I also think that that's not always a common uh, way to look at booth fees. I think that a lot of people look at them like more cynically, like you're just taking that money and padding the coffers of the organization with it. And um, I, it's hard because I, li- I like talking about this stuff because I think it's so interesting how expensive shows are to put on. And I think it's important that we as small businesses understand what you're really providing us and that you are interested, like keeping us in business is of interest to you. It's not just to do this event that you check out of and make money at. Um, so I guess all that to say, thank you for like continuing to push forward and try to put on a really killer show. And I mean, I just have no idea what it's going to be like. I'm just, you know, I, we decided to throw $150 at it. And if nothing else, we get our website on, like we get a listing for a year and we get the experience of doing it so that maybe we can be better next time. Or if you put on another digital show, we can be sort of more informed about what we have to bring to the show. Um, so I don't, I'm just, it's a hard, stressful thing, I think for all of us. And yeah. uh, just commiserating a little bit, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, we deal with that a lot. I mean, I think ultimately it all, like from my standpoint in my job, it comes down to communication, right? Because mm-hmm. if we can communicate to our artists what we do with the money or, or what our intentions are or where our thoughts are, right? Being transparent, we build trust. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, that's why like you're seeing it more now than ever i think with how shows handled covid how they handled booth fees how they did that and some of it is that like we were lucky right we hadn't taken in any money yet we hadn't Mm -hmm. spent that money yet so i could commiserate sympathize empathize with some of these show promoters but then how are they communicating to artists are they really like being honest about that or are they just kind of being rude you know i've read Mm -hmm. letters that people send and they're rude so communication is really important Mm -hmm. um and and building trust and then because for example if this is successful we're we've realized now like we need to charge more we provided so much for artists that we weren't even expecting that we didn't charge enough for that 
And so if this is successful for people, then they would be willing to pay more because they see what they're getting, right? We're not going to charge however much, you know, but I'm seeing it again with different shows now, like again, a show that I was invited to that's charging a lot of money. Well, what am I going to get for that? Is it going to be worth my investment? So we're all trying to figure that out now and build these models. And I think that, again, that comes down to communication. That Mm -hmm. is, we can explain, we had all the success. We've got stats for you. We've got data. We've got this. We've got that. This is why you want to do it. Because when we go and we, you know, that's marketing, right? We, We do that with artists. We go to shows to recruit people. And we're competing for your application that you could apply to this show. Like you were saying, like, how do you decide what shows to go to? And then they're all at the same time, just like a buyer. Everybody does this. Mm -hmm. So we want to build a more competitive show to keep the quality up. Well, how do we get applicants? We've got to sell our show to all of you. So, you know, it's all you're, you're branding it, you're marketing it. You know, it's, it's, it's all of that. You do it on all these different levels, because like you said, with the supply chain, like a craft show, it's kind of like that. You have your audience of your artists, you have your audience of your buyers, like the show producers communicating to both of them. They need each other because just like you were saying, you're paying rent, you know, you're, you're getting this promotion because you think that the show is going to bring buyers to you. But what we're communicating to our artists with this is that we all need to bring our buyers for each other Mm. because a shopper, when somebody like, I know like for our shoppers at a craft show, like even for myself, right. I went to ACC. I was there. um, We had a booth of our summer assistants. um, So I was helping with that. And I was also going around as a, gallery director and as a craft show promoter and as a shopper. So I bought, you know, I bought earrings. I bought a utensil holder for my kitchen. I bought a tray for my, I I bought a bunch of things. Right. And, um, so each of those artists, you know, benefited from me. I I wasn't just going and buying from one artist. I was buying from many. And so we can all kind of collectively and collaboratively bring buyers to expand our networks. And Mm. I I think that that's of a lot of value and isn't always realized like you're saying, like that's why you are selling, especially online when there are artists that maybe have an Instagram following and they could just sell things on their online store and make an income and they don't need that. Um, How do we grow our, our audiences? And we do it collaboratively. And, and, and I think that's really important. Mm. I wonder, um, I wonder how that's going to work because like we've gotten, we've certainly gotten sales at shows. Somebody clearly came for somebody else and they just came to see them and buy their thing because they know them or whatever. And then, you know, they walk by our booth and they're like, Oh, look at that. Interesting. You know, mm-hmm. and they stop in and they buy something that's not like um, expensive. Like, you know, we, our prices uh, strategically, they range from like uh, $15 to like, I think now the most expensive is like 800. We're pushing a thousand now for our most expensive stuff. Uh, really high end, like um, materials, only the best. And then all hand dyed and, you know, everything. So, we, you know, pull out the stops because we've got all this time now and we can just like do stuff like that, which yeah. is really nice. Um, but 
you know, they'll stop in and they'll be like, oh, interesting, cool. And they'll talk to us for a little while. They'll get to know us and then they'll buy something cheap. And then they just happen to be there next year or maybe see us at a different show. And then they like jump up to a $50 item. And then mm -hmm. six months later, we get an email saying, you know, I really love this hand towel that I bought. Uh, I was, I know that you had bath towels too. I was wondering if I could order a few of those. You know, so I think I'm curious to see how that happens, like how much that happens online, because so much of our sales process is in fact, um, like, go ahead and touch it, please. Like it's yeah. all, it's, it's made to be used. We want you to take it home and use it. So if you and the other thousand people that are here can't touch it in our booth, then like, why are we selling it? You know? So I think that like a big part of our like sales is in fact, people touching it, feeling it, talking to us about it, falling in love with it, and then not being able to leave without it. So that's, that's the part uh, that like when COVID hit, like there goes half of our sales right off the top. Cause somebody, you know, can't touch the thing that they want to buy. I mean, are they going to feel comfortable touching it? How can we sanitize fabric? You know, it's like all these mm -hmm. things. Um, and I'm interested. I'm really curious how that's going to work with an online show. I'm, so, I'm hoping that there is some way that it happens. So that's where I go back to me. What that is, is the buyer's confidence. Mm -hmm. And why I wanted to do the, the hop-in platform where you can be live to talk, it's the same idea. And again, there's lots, just like there's lots of different kinds of buyers, there's lots of different kinds of uh, artist exhibitors. So, mm -hmm. you know, when you go to a show, there's the person that's on their phone, in their booth, not engaging. And you kind of walk in their booth and it's all about you connecting with the work or not. Mm -hmm. And then kind of like to what you're talking about, there's the person that is charismatic, that's inviting, that's welcoming people into their booth. And for you, what you found is your like sales pitch in a physical setting is having people touch it, right? Mm -hmm. They come into your booth and you go, Hey, welcome, touch it. You're going to want to buy it. Mm -hmm. So now you've got to change your, what I would call marketing strategy, right? How are you going to sell that? And so you can still like get that confidence, but in a different way, maybe by talking about it, by finding adjectives to describe it so that if they can't physically touch it, what is that experience like to them? What is, what, how do you describe that tactility? So you say the, the work is really soft, you know, it's like this and you can hold it and you can show it. And I think that there are different ways that you can talk about it, that they're going to want to order it and like, get it home, mm -hmm. you know, and that they're going to wait for like that moment when they get to unpack the package that came in the mail and open this luxurious fabric and be able to physically be with it. Mm -hmm. You have to sell them on that so that they're going to want to buy that because they know that they're getting a good product. And then that's why like Last week, one of our topics with our exhibitors was about like, we called it transactional protocols, but ideas, it's, it's giving confidence to your buyer. So ideas like if you're going to have a return policy or not or something, right, to give people confidence that they're, they, they're buying from a trustworthy source, right? Mm -hmm. Confidence, trust, and like 
you want people, you want them to want it. So I think when you approach it then with that um, framework, and I think I, I love that we just talked about this because I'm going to make a note to talk about this on our Zoom session with our artists tomorrow awesome. about like, how do you sell, you know, how do you change your, your sales pitch just to sell it hmm. when they can't touch it or try it on? Because like yeah, for a lot on. of people it's jewelry. And so for me, right, so I'm wearing some earrings. I can try them on and show you. So how can you with take your products and apply that same idea. How can you show them in a video? Mm -hmm. Because that's what they're not getting when they're just going onto a website, you know, right. or when they, they don't get to ask those questions. And that's what I loved about this platform. And we'll see how people respond to it. Like we don't know, but I wanted to make that available because I really thought about how do sales happen at a, at a physical show? It's, it's not being, it's like you're saying, it's not just being there and setting up and people coming. There's more to it. There's there's all of that, like marketing and selling and how do you make the sale happen? Mm -hmm. You know, it takes work. Yeah. It takes work to set up a show, to drive to a show. It takes work to set it up online. It takes effort to be there and make those sales. It's not easy. Right. You know, yeah. and it's a challenge for artists. You got to hustle. <laughs> mm, for sure. You know, um, I think uh, I've got two things here written down uh, and I don't want to keep you too terribly long. Um, but I think that this is going to be a very interesting leveling field for a lot of shows because we've attended shows um, that are priced still the way they were priced when they were really popular shows and premier events in the country. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we've found that sometimes those shows are just coasting on a name and there's no way to go there and pay that much and make money. And they just have crazy turnover of, um, mm -hmm. of vendors because people are like, Oh, I can go to this event. I'll apply and see what happens. And then they get in and they get there and they realize, Oh, this is not what I, I thought it was or what it used to be. And I think yeah. that this and the is show a promoter just goes, I'll just replace you with another artist. I don't care about you. Right. Next yeah. year. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, but I think that this is going to be a really good leveling field. Everybody's going to have to, I mean, there, I feel like there is no show save for maybe the ACC shows that just have insane reach. Um, that is just going to be able to straight up charge what they charged like in 2019, the year that whatever year they end up restarting mm -hmm. their shows. I think that in order to build that trust up again with your vendors, it's, there's going to have to be some gradual entrance back into it in some way. I mean, and I, I really, I'm happy that you guys are thinking about that. Um, like in a way where even if it does, like if there's no way to make it cheaper, maybe it's like 50 up front and 50 after or something like that. Um, that I understand is a totally dangerous thing for you guys, because what if somebody's like, I didn't make any money, I'm just not going to pay you, and I'm okay never coming to the show again. Yeah, and that sucks right. for you. Um, but for those of us who really are super interested in getting back into the shows, and it was the way that we paid our bills, um, you know, I think that uh, promoters that come up with ideas like that are going to be the promoters who succeed. And in the end, are they're going to replace the shows with the high booth fees, but they're going to be worth it. You know, like 
you know, if you like nail this this year and then next year you start using us back in and then three years from now you're back to full full on full price shows and you've got killer attendees uh both on the creator and the purchaser side um you know you may end up being able to through your openness and your communication and willingness to work with like the artists and the attendees and all that stuff you you know you may be able to like supplant those crazy popular shows from back in the day um as like a premier event and i think that this is it for me it's an awesome time to be like a vendor because i feel like i can really see what each promoter is like and how they see their business and how they treat their artists it's sort of you know even in the beginning when um when i i had this very interesting i come from like a branding marketing background and i had this very interesting um experience in the beginning of all this when you know corporate big corporate businesses who clearly had enough money to do the right thing and you see how they treat their employees and the sort of rules that they set around their employees and how they're allowed to work or not allowed to work and whether they're paying them more or not or like giving to certain causes and things i think that um like people are going to remember all of that and i think that uh creators are going to remember how they were treated during this time by the promoters and i'm just happy to hear that it's being thought about you know i talked about this with jackie too and and they're thinking about this a lot as well and <laughs> i think um it, it makes me feel good that i may actually still have a viable business when we're able to get back up and running um but yeah i i guess that wasn't a question that was just a <laughs> a statement to you well, i suppose I, and i will say well thank you but um <laughs> In, in defense of like some of the show promoters that I'm glad I'm not in their shoes is that like, to your point, is, like one of the things that, that we struggle with to be perfectly honest is like our location, right? We're in Northwestern, New Jersey. We're not in a city. People have to travel out. And so we have to work that much harder to bring people to our show. Mm-hmm. If you're in a major city and you're putting on a craft fair, your venue is going to charge a whole lot more money than our, the fairgrounds charges Peters Valley, mm-hmm. right? You're going to have to pay that much more in advertising. Like everything, it's just like rent, right? Your rent when you live in a major city is a lot more than when you live out in the country. Mm-hmm. So they do have a lot more at stake in that way. And um, I don't envy that position. And it makes you think too, to say, to your point, like if we build all that trust and all of a sudden people, we have a competitive show and people want to do it. Would we then, you know, we've thought about, can we have a show at, you know, an urban museum in New Jersey? Can we, can we build out that way? Do we have staffing capacity for that? You know, these are things that we've thought about over the years and it's none of it is easy Mm. to answer. And so it's, it's just all really complicated. And I think, to your point, what it comes down to is are, do the show promoters, are, are they being kind to artists, right? And are they being um, open in like, like, how do I want to say this? I kind of lost my train of thought. So maybe I <laughs> That's totally that cool. Um, but, but like thinking about the artists and thinking mm. about the artists 
because for, for us again, like if we can't bring by, you know, we have this, this is what we always dealt with with the physical show. If we can't get buyers to come out to our show and artists aren't making money, then artists aren't going to want to travel and participate in our show. It doesn't matter how nice we are. Right. Right. We've always had a reputation of, you know, on the surveys, everybody says how great our staff is, but if they didn't make money, they're not going to come back and do the show. So you, we, we, artists are not a dime a dozen, like some of the show producers think. And I think it's really important that we value our artists. We also have been thinking about like, if we can get, I think because there's only two of us doing this and the things that we make are so labor intensive and so time consuming, um, that we were finding that there were really shows that reliably gave us income and shows that were really like hit or miss. And for us, the hit or miss shows aren't worth it because if they miss, then we're behind for like the next big show that really does give us income. And then we're eating into that and you know, it's like a whole thing. Um, and so what we decided to do this year was we, we cut it back to one a month or 12, you know, maybe they're bunched up and we take a few months off or whatever. Um, we decided to cut it back to 12 shows that really proved to themselves the last couple of years. And then from there, we were going to start adding shows that were farther away in bigger cities and slowly build back up. And we were thinking that by the time we got to that point in a few years, we would definitely be able to have somebody working for us and also weaving, doing some of the more production stuff so that we could do the funner, one of a kind, time consuming things between shows. And I think, I think also to your point, when I think about the quality of the artists, I mean, we know like, there's lots of craft fairs and there's lots of craft exhibitors and some make more thoughtful, um, Mm -hmm. more, I don't know the right word. I don't want to say anything insulting, but you know what I mean? There's a a level. Like when you go to an American craft council show, even those shows, I would say like they've changed over the years, you know, Mm -hmm. all the shows have changed because people have tried to make, products faster and they have to then compromise. Like I know my work is completely labor intensive. I have a full-time job. So I'm doing like only applying to the highest end shows. And if I get in, I do it. Right. So I'm not doing that very many shows. And now I'm trying to work down and say, okay, I want to have this like production line and Mm -hmm. that's still completely time consuming. And I don't want to charge that much money, right? Because I want to get it. You know, we're all trying to figure this out. And so I look at ours and go, well, yeah, I could make that work and sell it for that and just, you know, make it, make it, make it. I'm not interested in that, right? I want to be challenged. I want to always feel like as an artist, I'm, you know, continuing to discover things and Mm -hmm. learn and get better, you know, and there's something about production, even if you're making that kind of, less original work but like for me i always like i want my work to stand out i want it to be recognizable that you've never seen it before and Mm -hmm. that it's mine right and that all takes more time and it's more labor intensive work to make that to like kind of build that brand and so i think um and i'm seeing that with the younger artists that i see exhibiting because it is hard to break out into it like you're saying like these others they've got the system down they've been doing 
all these shows for years and there was a, a and they've been doing it since there was like the heyday of craft shows. Right. And that's been declining with buyers anyway. And design is more important now. And like things are evolving. And so I'm always thinking about what does the future look like? And especially now, like you're saying, like after COVID's happened, everything could change. Are all of these older people not going to do shows anymore? What's going to happen? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I'm also looking at like, what's the, what is, what are people actually making and what are people buying and what do younger people want to buy? And I mean, I'm often, it's some of it's a little discouraging to me when I go on to like, you know, a certain shows um, that I won't say that are maybe not craft shows, but trying mm-hmm. to break into that market. And like, it's a little, you know, is the future depressing? How depressing is it? I don't know. And we, we all just have to keep become you know, doing everything that we can and be optimistic that um, people want what we want, but right. it's, it's becoming challenging it and, is, it, yeah. and it's changing. Yeah, I, I know. It's, uh, it's a scary, I mean, we've got a scary few years coming up in terms of like craft and the survival and stuff like that. Because who knows? I mean, it could just be wiped out because there's no economy for any number of reasons. Or it's just I'm my goal is survival. So I'm like I'm here to weave and uh, you know and make awesome shit. Yeah, right. But that's why I think that working collaboratively and like really forming that craft community is more important than ever, mm. you know? And, and I know like I, I've talked to um, people that run national craft organizations and I always talk about, um, you know, our artists and how it's important that we don't forget about artists that make a living selling their work mm. and how are we here for them instead of just thinking about big institutions that promote craft or teach craft um, you know, how do we keep this viable for artists to make work and sell it? And, and I think sometimes that's, it's, it's forgotten a little bit. And so like that for me personally, as somebody that, um, feels privileged to kind of sometimes have a voice to be able to, to, you know, that people might listen because I am connected with, with people in the fields to say like, don't forget about this segment of our, of our, our industry and our field. Like, don't forget about them. Like, let's, you know, this is important. And Mm. um, I advocate for exhibiting, exhibiting and selling artists, um, you know, that, that's my job to do, right. It's my job. And, um, and I'm proud to be able to do that, but it's important to me. Cool. Well, thank you yeah. so much. I'm yeah, just you. looking forward to publishing this and uh, I got a lot of work to do tonight, I suppose. And you got to make sure you've been promoting from all the uh, stuff we've been giving you. Yes, I hope absolutely. It, I hope it works. So let me know. But um, thank yeah. you so much for inviting me. It was a great time and I'm excited for next weekend and yep, lots of work to do between now and then for sure. <laughs> I know. I know it's going to be two very long or a week and a half of very long hours. Yeah. yeah. But all right. Well, thank you so much and uh, we will chat soon. All right. Sounds all right. great. Take yeah, care. Enjoy. Bye. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye.
Brianne joined us for this interview in part to help promote the 50th annual Peters Valley Craft Fair, happening October 10th and 11th of 2020 from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. each day. You can find all the information and tickets online at Peters Valley. You can find all the information and tickets online at petersvalleygallery.org. Tickets start at $5, but if you can contribute more to the event or the school, we would like to encourage you to do so, helping to ensure artists and creators will have a place to show their work in the future. We will link to all the event information in the show notes. We hope to see you there. A special thank you again to our patrons. Your support means the world to us. Another thank you goes out to Rawhead the Recluse for providing music for our podcast. Find him at rawheadtherecluse.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Professional Weaver Society. And you can get full show notes at proweaverpod.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Professional Weaver Podcast. We look forward to sharing more episodes with you each Friday. Bye. Bye.